Hi, and welcome to episode four of CavalierCast, The Civil War in Words. In this podcast, I look at everything and anything to do with the War of the Three Kingdoms, which took place between 1639 and 1651. Now, the last three episodes have focused on battle anniversaries, but as I've just said, this podcast is for everything and anything Civil War related, and my aim is to vary the content. As such, I'm very pleased to have interviewed my first guest on the podcast. The easing of the lockdown restrictions have seen many museums reopen, and one of those is the Cromwell Museum, which is dedicated to telling the story of Oliver Cromwell's life and the times in which he lived. Today, I'm chatting to Stuart Orme, the museum curator. So welcome, Stuart. It's a pleasure to talk to you today. Uh, it is as well, likewise, um, to talk to you, Mark. So uh, great to be here and thank you very much for inviting me. No problem. You're welcome. Um, and you've been curator of the museum since 2018. Um, mm-hmm. So where did your interest in the 17th century stem from? Um, funnily enough, actually, I remember as a kid seeing uh, By the Sword Divided, the BBC yeah. costume drama back in the early 80s. So I've been about 10 or 11 when that came on the television and, and that fascinated me. And um, actually, I remember going with my parents to go and visit Rockingham Castle in Nottingham, in Northamptonshire, where it was filmed. And uh, shortly after that, I went to go and see uh, an English Civil War reenactment at um, uh, Lincoln Castle. And it was sort of, you know, kind of, uh, it was one of the periods of history. You know, I've been fascinated with history since I was little, but it's one of the periods of history I've always been sort of interested in. And um, also, which I studied at university as well. So um, it's kind of been a, a lifelong interest in this period. Yeah, they, they definitely don't make it in, in dramas like that anymore, do they? By the sort divided. Uh, sadly not, no. And actually, I mean, it's also one of the better depictions of the Civil War period. It's sort of in terms of its sort of historical accuracy and the way it depicts various mm. of the historical characters. Um, the guy who played Charles I, Jeremy Clyde, actually was so good, he looked like he just stepped out of a Van Dyke painting. He was that good. So, uh, yeah, I mean, actually, I, I still reckon even now it's one of the best sort of depictions of the period we've seen yet on the screen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That visual representation of it, isn't it? Draws mm. you right in to the world. Mm. OK, great. Thank you. So so the museum's just reopened, hasn't it, after a refurbishment? And then obviously we have had COVID-19. So yeah. how has this gone and how are you managing the, the visits? Well, um, yes, we, we sort of, uh, the museum was refurbished um, the, the tail end of last year, beginning of this year. Um, we actually closed at the end of September uh, for four months to do a major refurbishment, the first time that one had been done at the museum in over 30 years. And uh, we were very lucky to get some grant support that enabled us to do that. And um, we opened on the 1st of March. We had a grand reopening ceremony. Uh, we had our patron, Sir John Major, who, of course, was MP for Huntingdon in the same way as Cromwell was, came and reopened it for us. Yeah. Our friends from the Sealed Knot came and did a march through the town. It was great. And then, um, yeah, 17 days later, we had to close again with COVID, So, um, which, which was a bit of a kick in the teeth, but at the same time, entirely the right thing to do given the circumstances and um, at least we had a couple of weeks open where people got the opportunity or the first visitors got the opportunity to come and see what we've done with the place and um, the feedback's been very good from that which is great Um, but yes it's been an interesting few months for us and like many museums we've been 
wrestling with sort of the the whole issue of how to cope with the COVID period. We've had to do quite a lot of fundraising to keep ourselves going because we're an independent museum. And um, uh, also keeping people entertained by putting more content online through uh, our social media streams and sort of starting a a line of videos on uh, YouTube as well. So it's been a different way of working for the last few months, but then it's, it's great to be reopened. Obviously, we've had to sort of put some certain contingencies in place. So we've had to change our opening hours slightly. We're practicing social distancing. We're asking visitors hand sanitize before they come in. We've got a regular cleaning regime inside the museum. Um, there's sort of social distance queuing outside, perspex screens around the counter. All the things you kind of associate really with sort of, you know, shops and retail that we're kind of getting used to in this, this new normal, as it were. And uh, we're also doing one day a week where we're doing pre-booked visits because we recognise some people are a bit nervous about coming out, particularly when other people are around. So we're doing specific um, visits on Tuesdays where people can pre-book slots and they get a kind of guided tour with myself thrown in as part of that. So we've had to adapt the way we work things, but obviously we follow the government and uh, sector guidance to make sure that our visitors and volunteers and staff are as safe as possible. Yeah, that that sounds great, and great that you've you've got a tailored approach to that as well. Um, sounds really good. Yeah. So touching on the museum there, so um, when when was the museum itself founded? So the museum was set up in 1962. Um, okay. It was originally <clears throat> it's an interesting relationship between Huntingdon and Cromwell. Um, obviously, Cromwell was born in Huntingdon and spent over half his life here, and in fact went to school in the very building which is today the museum. Um, but uh, for actually for a lot of history, actually the town was a bit embarrassed by him. Um, back in the Victorian period, the sort of uh, the town was very high church and therefore was a bit anti-Cromwell. So whereas down the road in St Ives, where he moved to next, which was very non-conformist, they were quite proud of their association with him. Sort of hunting and was always a bit embarrassed by it. And it was only really in the 20th century they kind of rediscovered their kind of uh, relationship with their most famous son. Uh, so in 1958, there was an exhibition held here in Huntington Town Hall, um, which was to commemorate the 300th anniversary of Cromwell's death. And the exhibition proved to be so popular that uh, they decided to create a permanent museum. So at that time, because the, the what is now our museum building had become vacant, so that became the, the place for it. And um, it was originally run <clears throat> by the district council or by the, what was then the county council. And it can continue to be run later by Cambridgeshire County Council up until 2014, when unfortunately, due to budget cuts, um, uh, the county couldn't uh, sustain the museum any longer and it nearly closed altogether. Uh, but fortunately, the decision was to create it then as an independent charity. So we've been a, an independent museum for the last five years. So, And uh, hopefully now going from strength to strength. Wow. Excellent. Yeah. And the building itself um, is amazing. So as you see, it's... Uh, used to be a grammar school where Cromwell was educated, former 12th century medieval hospital. That's correct, yeah. I mean, the oldest parts of the building date to about 1160. So um, it was originally a much bigger building than we've got today. And uh, it was run by the Augustinian canons. Uh, what is today the quiet high street in Huntingdon was at that time Ermine Street. It was the Great North Road. Right. So it was the main artery of the country going between London and York. So literally, you know, the amount of traffic going through the middle of the town was it was huge. So lots of people needed places to stay overnight. Um, if they couldn't afford to stay at the tavern, they could stay at the uh, the hospital. So literally a place that provided hospitality. 
get a meal and a bed for the night and, um, and, and then move on the following day. Of course, being a monastic institution, it was closed by Henry VIII. Much of the building was demolished. Um, but what survives then became the local grammar school um, from 1565 onwards. And um, they say Cromwell attended school there, as did Samuel Pepys, who, of course, worked for oh. Cromwell in the 1650s. Yeah, as did Edward Montague, who was uh, one of Cromwell's commanders and admirals and, of course, was responsible for transporting Charles II back to England. So within a generation, there was a remarkable series of um, schoolboys from the mid-17th century who all went to school in this tiny little building in a backwater like Huntingdon. So <laughs> quite remarkable, really. Yeah, yeah. And, and obviously Cromwell saw, for many people, like a lot of historical characters, they um, can be quite controversial. He is a divisive figure. How, how do you deal with that as a museum? Um, well, we sort of take the attitude that we're not Cromwell's fan club. Um, you know, our job is not to sort of, you know, there's a tendency sometimes with uh, some places associated with famous historical figures to become almost like a bit of a shrine to them. Uh, and that's not our approach. We sort of take the view that um, we're, we're there, as we always say, to tell Cromwell's story warts and all. And um, so, uh, you know, we, we took a very straight down the line uh, approach to the way we, we tell his story. Um, we, we kind of deal with some of the myths, of which there are many. Um, but uh, we also recognise the fact that, you know, some people love him, some people hate him. He's obviously deeply controversial because of his association with the regicide, the execution of the king, and most particularly with his campaigns in Ireland. Um, you know, some people said the most hated man in Irish history. So, um, you know, we, we sort of don't shy away from that and uh, we allow visitors to make their own minds up about it. So it, it's an interesting exercise in terms of making sure that um, we tell the story as fairly as possible. And we have a team of um, some of the leading academics on this period who have advised our displays during our refurbishment. And um, then otherwise, you know, you try and tell it as honestly and fairly as you can and, and let visitors make their own minds up for themselves. Uh, what what's maybe the the biggest myth that you you see about Cromwell? Uh, well, the most popular one, of course, is that he cancelled Christmas, um, which uh, actually he didn't. Um, it's an interesting one. You know, that was cancelled by Parliament, of course, as we know, during the Civil War itself. And Cromwell was away at the war at the time. Um, nice. And and uh, actually, we have no 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 knowledge what he thought about Christmas. We, we talked to John Morrill about this, uh, Professor John Morrill, who who's kind of uh, just doing a new volume of um, all of Cromwell's letters and speeches. And he basically says Cromwell doesn't even mention Christmas once in any of his speeches or writings. We have no idea what he thought about it. And um, But, you know, the, the whole image of Cromwell, which has kind of come around, I suppose, in popular culture uh, and the way he's depicted in many of the films and television programmes, we have this doer individual who's dressed in black with warts, who's a bit of a killjoy, who, um, you know, is the party pooper, who's a religious zealot. Um, and actually, once you dig down beyond that, actually, the truth is rather more surprising. Um, you know, there are no contemporary images of Cromwell wearing black at all. Black was actually one of the most expensive cloth dyes in the 17th century. The whole image of the black-clad Puritan is something of a Victorian myth. Um, we know he liked music. We know he liked dancing. He, he, though he was very kind of a devoted family man, he apparently liked practical jokes, um, which again people sort of find very strange. 
Um, you know, he was also a deeply emotional man and battled with depression for much of his life. Some people have even said he was bipolar. Um, you know, he could have mood swings and be, um, you know, hysterical laughter in one moment and in floods of tears in another at certain points. So he's a far more complex character um, than, than perhaps we think. Um, and, and, you know, a man that, um, for all his, his anti-Catholicism in Ireland, practised a, a form of religious toleration in England, which wouldn't be seen again for another 200 years. So he's, he's a complex and, and sometimes contradictory character, I think. Yeah, really interesting what, you, what you've touched on there. Um, so the, the museum itself, so you've got over um, 800 items, haven't you? But can you mm. tell us about your favourite or one of your favourite items? Yeah, it's a remarkable collection. Um, you know, I'm very privileged to kind of get to look after it as part of my day job. And um, uh, it's, it's a mixture of materials. So we've got, you know, amazing artworks. So some of the most famous portraits from this period by Robert Walker, the famous Waltz and All portrait by Peter Lealy that sort of thing very personal items uh, relating to Cromwell um, which have been very kindly loaned to us by his family so we have a very good relationship with the, the Cromwell Bush family and um, uh, you know these different different objects are different days I think are my favourites you know in one sense is a remarkable survival that is what is reputed to be his hat um, his swords which are beautiful items and as somebody who's got an interest in military history they're, they're, they're a sort of an incredible item to have as well I think probably a lot of the time, though, it's his medical chest, which is a beautiful item, um, which he would have taken with him with all the sort of pills and potions, possibly on campaign, certainly while he was Lord Protector, <clears throat> and um, would have dealt with his various health complaints that he had in later life, including his his bouts of malaria and um, uh, kidney stones. So it's a you know it's a fascinating kind of link with this uh, with this this very um, famous individual. So um, it's impossible to have all of those on display, understandably. Um, mm. But how often do you vary what is on show? So uh, we, we we sort of when we did the refurbishment, we took about thirty percent of what we had on display off uh, off display, and then put more on. So overall, we've got about fifteen percent on display more than we had before. Well, that's still only about half the collection, um, which is actually quite good. Most museums, it's a, a far smaller proportion on display, but we're we're a quite a small museum. And uh, so we, we have those in our collection store. Um, we do obviously bring certain objects out for different temporary exhibitions. Um, so we have uh, a regular program of temporary displays throughout the year, which gives us the opportunity to sort of bring out things or talk about different topics that perhaps aren't as normal part of the normal displays. We do, of course, loan some items out to other institutions and museums as well. Um, and um, Obviously, we've only just reopened, but uh, the aim is to sort of have a kind of gradual changeover of some of the items. You know, obviously, some objects are iconic and you want them to be there all the time. But sort of other ones, it's nice to have a bit of a changeover every now and again. So every year or so, then some of the, the inverted commas permanent displays will also tweak, change and add or subtract a few things into the bargain. And of course, as with all museums, um, in normal times, certainly we're very welcome, you know, researchers or anybody who's interested to make an appointment and come and see anything that's in the collection that isn't all ordinarily on display. Oh, that's excellent. Okay. Um, and in terms of the, the, the one item, would you say, that's overlooked by most visitors, if you had to pick one? 
Um, yeah, I mean, it's probably one of the most significant items, and yet it's the one that everybody kind of, uh, unless you point it out to them and how significant it is, people walk past it. Um, and that's the instrument of government, um, which is we've got an original paper copy of. Um, which, of course, was the constitution that was introduced um, in December 1653, uh, by, written by John Lambert, uh, but basically it was the governing document for the protectorate. And it's, it's so significant because it's the world's first written constitution, um, the first written constitution anyway for a major nation state. And, uh, you know, it's an irony today for a country that doesn't have a written constitution. We were the first country to have one. And, you know, it, it goes against the idea, you know, that, that was put around by some historians in the 1930s that, you know, Cromwell is a dictator. This is a man who actually introduced constitutional government that had set very profound limits. Although in certain respects, it was a kind of monarchy in all but name. It still had limits on the power and what terms of what he could and couldn't do. And a lot of the concepts from it, particularly things like separation of powers, even though the constitution disappeared at the restoration of the monarchy, a lot of those ideas permeated elsewhere and, of course, ended up in documents like the American Constitution. So it's a hugely significant document. And um, yes, it's the one that a lot of the time people just sort of don't necessarily register as perhaps as much as they should do. Mm. And, and death masks as well. So you've got um, one of Cromwell's death masks. Mm. But how many are in existence? Well, we've actually got about half a dozen copies of the death mask in the collection. Um, now, um, it depends what you mean by death masks, because there have been, uh, there's the original ones, and then there's the sort of copies that were churned out in the Victorian oh. period. So um, okay. uh, basically what happened was uh, the day after Cromwell's death, a guy called Thomas Simon, who was the man who designed many of the medals and indeed the coins for the, for the, um, the, the parliament and the protectorate, um, went in and basically took a, a wax cast of Cromwell's face. And that original wax mould survives. It's in the British Museum. Um, from that, they did various plaster casts, um, of which there are about 20 that survive across the world, um, of which we've got one of them, um, which were probably used at Cromwell's funeral for various funeral effigies and things like that. Um, in the Victorian period, when Cromwell, of course, was revered by the Victorians, there were lots of companies made commercial copies of the uh, death mask. And that's why there's a lot of them around today in museums. And you can always tell the sort of Victorian or 19th century ones from the original 17th century ones because of the wart on the forehead. And the reason for this is because the original uh, wax cast, for some reason or other, the wart on Cromwell's forehead didn't show up. Now, whether it had dropped off by the time of his death, whether it didn't show up on the mould for some reason, we simply don't know. But the, the 17th century versions of the death mask, there isn't a wart on the forehead. Now, of course, the Victorians thought it didn't look enough like Cromwell without the wart, so they stuck the wart back on. And in fact, you can actually date in the 19th century where it was made because different manufacturers put the wart in different places. So it's a case of Cromwell and his wandering warts. <laughs> right. That's fascinating. I didn't know anything about that. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the differences between them all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's like, yeah, there's a whole study you can do. I mean, you can get into these things with, you know, Cromwell death masks. It's... Yeah. Um, it's uh, a bizarre one, and it always it always fascinates kids when you um, explain that story to them. They always delight the idea of wandering warts. So, <laughs> yeah, almost like a maker's mark, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it kind of is, yeah, yeah. And you can say you can date the different ones, you know, whether they were made in the eighteen twenties or the eighteen forties, eighteen fifties, different manufacturers. Yeah. By as I say, the positioning of the wart on the forehead. <laughs> 
Okay, uh, and on the opposite side, so do you have any of um, Charles I's personal belongings? The Charles I's personal belongings very rare. Um, so uh, a large portion of them tend to be in things like the royal collection. Obviously, there are okay. a few in sort of you know stately homes and what have you, where uh, specific items were were given, um, particularly items relating to the king's execution. He gave various bits of his personal ephemera to people as gifts on the sort of day or day or so before his execution. So we haven't got any of his personal ephemera. Um, we do have obviously uh, quite a few items relating to Charles. So we've got a number of copies of uh, Icon Basilicae, the, um, uh, the sort of the, the iconic book that was published within hours almost of the king's execution, sort of setting out his thoughts and prayers. And we've got a very rare example of that, which is one of the, uh, the more extended versions of it actually on display. Mm. Um, we also have, of course, several portraits of Charles in the collection. There's a very fine one by Peter Lely we've got on display. Um, we've also got a nice 18th century copy of a Van Dyke as well. So, yes, I mean, obviously you can't tell Cromwell's story without recognising Charles I. So, um, yes, you know, he, he's an important part of the display. Is along with Cromwell's family, his contemporaries, people like Thomas Fairfax, George Monk, John Thurlow. Um, various of the others as well, who we've got kind of uh, represented amongst the portraiture. So, um, you know, they, they, it's all part of the same story. Yeah, great. Okay. Um, and do you have, uh, you mentioned that you do loan um, artifacts to other museums. Um, do you currently have any loaned out at the moment? Uh, not to other museums at the moment, no. Um, whilst we were refurbishing, we'd loaned um, our, our Lely portraits, so the famous Warts and All portraits, uh, one of Cromwell's swords and his hat. In fact, it was the very first time the hat had ever been loaned out. Um, those were loaned to our friends at the National Civil War Centre in Newark, so um, they had them there for a while um, as part of their well-toned upside-down display. Um, but uh, those obviously came back um, when the, just before the museum reopened to be part of our permanent displays. Um, we, we're very happy to loan items out to other museums. We do quite regularly. Um, we also have a certain proportion of our artwork, um, the 18th century portraits of the kind of later Cromwell family are on long-term loan to Hinchinbrook House down the road from here, which is um, actually the, the house itself is part of the sixth form block of a, a state school. Um, but it's open to the public in the summer months for guided tours. It's uh, the house of, that was owned by the Montague families and originally was built by the Cromwells. So it's got a strong connection to Cromwell's family. Um, his uncle owned it and then uh, lost it because he went bankrupt pretty much. So um, because of that kind of long historical connection, we actually have portraits and a few other items on permanent display there as well. Brilliant. Yeah, I actually saw the hat and the sword in the Civil War Centre just before, it must have been just before it was sent back. Mm. Yes, yes, uh, we collected those back in uh, end of January. So, yes, we yeah. sort of uh, swiped them back quickly just before we reopened. So. Mm. Uh, and you've also got an adopt an item, haven't you? Um, how does that work? So, yes, it's um, one of our, uh, as I say, it's an independent museum. Um, you know, we, we get a grant from Huntington Town Council, which we're very grateful for. Um, but the majority of our income comes from grants uh, from visitors, obviously people who um, uh, visit the museum and donate or, you know, purchase items or whatever, uh, those sorts of things. So, um, 
we uh you know are very grateful for any support we can get and one of the things we do is we uh, have this scheme whereby you can adopt an object and um basically the way that works is that um uh, you, you get a sort of adoption certificate depending on your level of adoption we also give you a print of the of the, the object in question and uh, you get a regular newsletter to update you about it and there's sort of a listing on our website that people can go on to and it's a nice way of fundraising it's a nice way people are donating to the museum but also getting in a more uh, intimate connection to some of our objects as it were so that we've been running that for the last year now and it's proved to be very successful so we'll be continuing it and hopefully some of the people who adopted an object so far want to renew their their adoption next year and have any of the artifacts in the collection been borrowed for any use in films um not really no uh, i mean i know some museums do lend items out for museum for, for films and television and so on i mean famously back in the 1970s something the royal armories lent a lot of the arms and armor that was used in the film win stanley for example in the battle scenes there um uh, we do though we do have regular filmings for things like um uh, documentaries and so on so uh, uh, a few months ago when there was the documentary on the trial and execution of charles the first on bbc4 uh, they came and filmed with us then um pre-refurbishment so um we we do quite often have kind of the, that kind of thing where sort of people will come in and film if they're doing kind of factual stuff but uh you know a film company does want to approach us we'd be very happy to talk to them uh, we've been involved with a project recently, um, a theatre project, where they're doing a, um, a play being put together about um, Edward Sexby and the levellers and the plot to assassinate Cromwell in the 1650s. So we've been working with a theatre company and, and supporting them on their research on that, which has been great to be involved with. So a slightly different question now. So if Cromwell were to visit the museum today, which item do you think he would dismiss from the collection altogether? oh that's a good question um i think i don't know what he would think about uh sort of you know uh, whether or not he would view sort of the whole thing as being a bit iconoclastic i don't know whether he'd be a bit surprised um uh, it's a difficult one really because i mean after his death he was sort of very much you know there was this huge elaborate funeral which again i don't think he necessarily would have wanted So it's an interesting question. I, I think he'd be a bit bemused by the idea that there was a, a museum to him. Um, uh, I think he might have been quite amused. I think it would have tickled his sense of humour as well. Uh, but uh, I suspect probably things like the photograph we've got of uh, somebody brandishing his head, sort of the, the shriveled head of Cromwell in the 1930s. I don't suspect, I think he probably might think that's a bit disrespectful, you know, his head being touted around like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can understand. <laughs> are, are there any um, items which you would say are misunderstood? That's a good question. Um, misunderstood. No, I mean, I, it, there's some various items we go through sort of reinvention and reinterpretation with. Um, so for a long time, there were two portraits that we had on display which have been reputed to be Cromwell's parents. And in fact, um, the, the one of, Ron, of, of what was thought to be Robert Cromwell, his father, um, was thought to be the only existing portrait of him. And um, actually, when we kind of reevaluated these, working with the art expert Angus Haldane a couple of years ago, um, the, um, uh, basically we found actually most likely these portraits aren't of Cromwell's parents at all. So what we had on display were two random portraits of 17th century pen people, and we have no idea who they are whatsoever. So those haven't gone back on display. Um, 
I suppose this is one which is very difficult to interpret is a very curious painting we've got, which is actually not of Cromwell, but of his son, Richard, surrounded by these various um, uh, kind of nymphs. It's a sort of bit of a 17th century bit of satire. They're holding away from him in both the crown and the sort of seal of the protector, showing that he's not suitable for either. And uh, it's a very difficult object to interpret. And most people think it's deeply weird, which it is. Um, you know, I always say to people, I think the artist had eaten a bit too much cheese the night before he painted it. Uh, so that's certainly a very peculiar one to try and interpret for people. Okay. And, and last question. So are there any paranormal stories attached to maybe the building or the collection? Um, not that are credible, I don't think. No, okay. I mean there was um, there was a few years ago a group of ghost hunters before my time at the museum. A group of ghost hunters uh, did ask to be spend uh, part of the night in the museum, and they were allowed to do so. And they they claimed that various things happened. Um, you know, personally, I'm open to the idea of you know things being paranormal. I, I worked at Peterborough Museum. I used to do kind of ghost walks around Peterborough, and I had various strange things happen to me there. So you know, I'm, I'm open to the idea of ghostly happenings, mm -hmm. but I, I can't say that I've ever come across anything so far inside the Cromwell Museum. Um, Huntingdon Town Hall, where I'm sitting at the moment, where my office is just across the way from the museum, is a slightly different matter. Um, I think that there's certainly a various things been reported here, but the museum itself, no, not really. Oh, that's brilliant. Okay, that's been really, really interesting, really revealing as well. Um, no, you're very welcome. So much there that, that I wasn't aware of, so thank you very much, um, Stuart. Yeah. That's, that's great. Is there anything else that you wanted to, to add before we finish? No, I mean, uh, otherwise, just that, uh, you know, obviously we're now reopen again. Uh, if people do want more information, then um, if they, you know, want to uh, have a look at our website, uh, cromwellmuseum.org. Um, there's uh, also, of course, our Twitter and uh, Facebook feeds as well, which obviously, as you know, we keep uh, busy every day. So, um, and, and obviously our YouTube channel now, where we've got a whole series of videos about different aspects of this period. Um, you know, if people are interested and want to find out, more then obviously please do have a look at those excellent yes so the cromwell museum well worth a visit thank you very much that's great thank you very much Stuart. yes yeah, no problem at all cheers mark and um best of luck with the rest of the podcast i hope you've enjoyed this episode don't forget you can listen to cavalier cast on apple podcasts or on spotify and you can keep in touch with me on twitter at 1642 author or on facebook at facebook.com forward slash mark turnbull author once again, thanks for listening. <laughs>